I don't sit around just talking to experts because this is a college uh, seminar. We talk to these folks because they potentially had the best answers, so I know who's asked to kick. Welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Friday, June 11th, and that was President Obama, you heard at the top, delivering the soundbite of the week. You know, I can just imagine his staff saying, yeah, go ahead, you can say ass, say it. Like consulting whether or not it's okay to say it? Yeah, now that he said it, we can say it. Today on the podcast, sex, drugs, and regulation. (laughs) There will be a short bit of the first two sex and drugs. There will be a longer portion about regulation. We're going to ask the questions, why in the oil spill and in the financial crisis and in that mining collapse, why can't regulators seem to, well, regulate? First, our Planet Money Indicator, delivered by our favorite blogger, Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money Indicator, $2.6 billion. That's how much money BP is supposed to pay out in dividends later this summer. So dividends, that means money BP is going to pay to its stockholders. But, of course, for people living near the oil spill, that is money that they feel like could be spent on helping fishermen near their homes, cleaning up beaches, washing pelicans. Right. And it's still really unclear how much all that's going to cost. I mean, if you look, you'll see estimates out there now of a few billion dollars and then ranging all the way up to like $30 billion. And politicians in the U.S. have been pushing BP to hold off on paying that dividend. But the British government, this is sort of interesting, is saying, wait, wait, let's think about this. Why are they saying that? Because who are those shareholders? They're not rich oil magnates. They are, in this case, old, retired British pensioners who would very much like their dividends. Thank you. So what's what's going to happen? It's still unclear. Uh, the CEO of BP told the Wall Street Journal that the company is looking at all its options. And the Times of London is reporting today that the company is considering taking that money and putting it in escrow. So that means they'll basically put it on hold and wait and see how much they're going to have to pay for the cleanup. All right. Thank you, Jacob Goldstein. Thanks, guys. So, David, the inspiration for today's show actually came to me when I was reading about BP. I was reading an article in the paper about the BP regulators. And this was a few weeks after there was a big coal mine explosion in West Virginia. And it was, you know, after Toyota had recalled those cars with the accelerator pedal problems. And, of course, it was about a year and a half after the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. And here's an article about the regulators. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, the the regulators. Like, What is up with the regulators? We had done all this reporting about banking regulators and what they missed. And seeing the article, I was thinking, like, there's just been so many big disasters, all in regulated industries. Mining has regulators, oil has regulators, and finance also does. And seeing this article, I was just thinking there have been so many big disasters recently, all in industries that are regulated. Mining has regulators and oil has regulators. Banking has regulators. And in all cases, the regulators really seem to have dropped the ball. So, look, for for context, you know, accidents happen and the things they regulate are complicated. Drilling under a mile of water into the ocean floor is not easy. Credit default swaps are very complicated. And, you know, stuff happens. Unexpected stuff happens. But what is also true is that in each of these disasters, there are specific ways in which the regulators really failed. Similar ways, actually. So today we ask, 
can you make regulators prevent oil spills and banking crises and mine explosions? Or are regulators always going to be somehow kind of flawed? To start, we asked Philip Verlager to introduce us to the oil regulators specifically and talk about what happened there. And Verlager is a professor at the University of Calgary Business School. He watches the oil industry really closely. He also worked for President Carter's Treasury Department. And he laid things out for us. The regulator for oil drilling in particular, is called the Minerals Management Service, MMS, and they are part of the Interior Department. And Verlager says the list of concerns about MMS is very, very, very long. More and more information has come out over the last few years that all basically points out that these regulators were way too close to the companies and the people that they regulate. MMS has a major office in Denver, and there were many stories of companies offer, giving them uh, illegal gratuities. People were fired, uh, and I think a couple of people prosecuted because essentially the industry offered them all sorts of benefits that they're not supposed to receive. They didn't offer those benefits just to be nice. They offered them because they were getting something. Uh, and you know, the, there was a uh, the Inspector General's report, which I've only looked at in summary. Just it's amazing. It just, I just, yeah. I mean, it just quantifies, yeah, you know, a, a lot of behavior that you know when I was at Treasury, you would have gone to jail for if you'd done any of those things. You know, we were allowed to take go out to lunch for fifteen dollars, and no more. <laughs> no more. Yeah, you know, just read that Inspector General's report. Just a little bit of it. There was no gray line. I mean, these guys, they were way over it. All right. Here is that report, the Inspector General report that came out in 2008 after the Inspector General got tipped off that they should look into the activities of a group of regulators within the Minerals Management Service called RIK. Here's a quote. During the course of our investigation, we learned that some RIK employees frequently consumed alcohol at industry functions, had used cocaine and marijuana, and had sexual relations with oil and gas company representatives. And just in case it's not completely clear, the inspector general clarifies in the report why those things are wrong by writing marketers. Marketers are those MMS regulators. Marketers also engaged in brief sexual relations with industry contacts. Sexual relationships with prohibited sources cannot, by definition, be arm's length. Just to have this clearly on the record, when you were at yeah. Treasury, you never went to any sex parties? No. Drug no. parties? No. no. Right. I did have a martini or two. <laughs> so Verlegger is an economist, and he doesn't look at the people at MMS and say, wow, what a crazy bunch of corrupt individuals. He assumes there's some rational reason why they're behaving that way, why the regulators are partying with the regulated. There are incentives that drive people's behavior. And with oil, he says, he's got a pretty good idea of what those incentives are. The way things are set up, both the regulators and the regulated are sort of in the same business. They both want as much oil to be drilled as possible. The company that's going to produce the oil and gas will first pay a upfront fee for access to the property. To and the it, government. To the government, to the government, to, to, to access it's government to government land. Yeah. If they find oil and they produce oil, a percentage of the production will be paid as rent to the landowner. The government regulator is the agency that collects the rent. And, right? and what, what percentage is it? 12 to 15 percent. That's a, that's, so that could be a lot of money, right? The uh, MMS <laughs> collected more revenue for the government than any other agency except the Internal Revenue Service. I think they collected $13 billion last time I checked. Wow. So they're right after taxes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
So we have taxes coming in from all the corporations and every every living human being in this country, basically. Yeah. And then after that is oil revenue. Oil, that was, oil, oil and natural gas revenue. Why is that done through the regulator? So, so the the person collecting that is the same person that's supposed to be saying, "This is safe. This is not safe. You can do this. You can't do this." That's right. Same person. Same agency. Yes. I mean, it, it's a huge conflict of interest. You know, the MMS has the incentive to encourage people to to raise more revenue because then there'll be more explora- exploration, and. Uh, if it's successful exploration, there'll be more production, and so they'll have more. They'll be generating more revenue for the budget. It promotes growth, more positions, more activity, more importance. We looked into the question of where oil revenues rank after the IRS. So first of all, the IRS brings in so much more than just about anything else. It's kind of a crazy comparison. But if you look down, down, down the list, there, there's customs, taxes, alcohol taxes, and earnings from the Fed, and all of those actually beat oil revenue. After that, somewhere in there is oil. But point taken, for a regulating agency, what it brings in is pretty significant. And basically what he's saying is that it's not that the people working for MMS are getting huge bonuses when they bring in additional oil revenue, but more oil means more money for the agency, more money for the government, means the agency gets to grow, and the agency becomes more important. Okay, so that Inspector General report came out two years ago in 2008. It got covered in the press. There were some public apologies issued. Some people got fired. But the rules everyone was playing by did not change. And this is one problem people often point out with regulators. In order to make real changes, you need more than some report about sex and drugs. It seems like you basically need a huge disaster, one that everyone pays attention to, everyone gets really mad about, and one that has the public just screaming for change. When it comes to oil, David, I'd say we have arrived There is actually a new inspector general report about a Louisiana MMS office that was responsible for managing the lease and collecting royalties specifically from BP's Deepwater Oil Rig. And the report details more of the same, that basically the regulators were really cozy with the industry. There's no sex and drugs in this one, but there are hunting and golf trips that it says regulators accepted from industry that they shouldn't have. So just last month, just a few weeks after the Deepwater oil leak began, the Interior Department made this announcement. Secretary Salazar split the MMS into two parts. They're in, still in the same Department of Interior. They have a, uh, a revenue collection and leasing activity, and they have separately have a, an, a, a group that will regulate the development of offshore wells. So there you have it, an actual change in the rules. Now there will be two separate groups within MMS over here, guys who collect royalties, and over there, people who are going to watch out for safety. So real structural change, an agency transformed. The incentives of safety people, they will hopefully no longer be aligned with the incentives of the oil industry. I feel good. Problem solved. Okay, I think that does it for us today. <laughs> no, Please. no, no. So, David, wait, that, that is exactly the problem. The public and us in the media, we stop paying attention. You know, after we hear a big announcement like that, we stop watching. And those changes in the rules do not always work. So, let me introduce you to someone who worked for a different regulator. So, Larry, tell me your name, how you want to La- be identified. Lawrence Kaplan. Lawrence, not Larry. And yeah. what's your ti- what title would you like me to use? Um, an attorney with Paul Hastings, Janoski, and Walker in Washington. 
So this guy that I regularly call Larry, but apparently is Lawrence to all of you, he worked as a financial regulator in the 1980s. And the regulator's name? Well, it does not exist anymore. I um, worked for originally the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, which was the federal regulator of savings and loan associations. Did you have a a nice little acronym for that? FLUB. FLUB. (laughs) Uh, Actually, you know, it's funny. FHLBB, only after uh, did we people refer to it as the FLUB. Only after it failed. Yeah. The FLUB was responsible for savings and loans in the 1980s. And yes, we are talking about the SNL crisis here. Savings and loans are a type of bank. And when Larry was working for that regulator, savings and loans were failing left and right. And his agency had been regulating them, which meant that back in the late 80s, Larry was experiencing something similar to what I imagine MMS people are living through right now. His agency, Flub, was making headlines, and he and his colleagues were facing sudden and unwanted celebrity. I mean, it, it was interesting because when went to work there, nobody ever heard of it, and suddenly it's on the news. So all of a sudden you could say, that's us. All right. So there again, you have your disaster necessary for reform, your SNL equivalent of an oil spill. People are paying attention. Voters are really angry. And in 1989, President Bush, the first President Bush, signs legislation to deal with FLUB. The legislation has its own acronym. It's called, how do you pronounce it? FIREA. FIREA. It's called FIREA. And it was intended to be major banking reform, structural change, a change in the rules and the way the regulator is set up. And one thing it did was totally abolish Larry's agency. We actually, a group of lawyers and other uh, people went to the rooftop of the Hotel Washington, which is just on the other side of the White House. We all went up there. We watched um, the Rose Garden ceremony where uh, George Bush the first gave this speech that we weren't going to. We got rid of this agency that caused the problem. Um, got after, rid of you guys. Pardon me. Yeah. He got rid of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board. But what happened is we walked back and we actually passed the White House and we saw the people coming back through the gate, and we got back and. It was it was amazing because they changed the name on the building already while this ceremony was going on. While we were across the street for you know, perhaps no more than an hour, suddenly the Federal Home Loan Bank Board name was taken down from the agency's wall. It said the Office of Thrift Supervision. We went up and actually on our chairs, there was a memo saying, you know, congratulations, we're now the Office of Thrift Supervision. So while George Bush said we got rid of that agency that caused the problem, they did get rid of the agency on the org chart of the government. But what happened is they just renamed it. And the new name on the sign outside the building, the Office of Thrift Supervision. Why does that sound familiar? You may remember that agency if you've been listening to Planet Money for a while. It later became the regulator of AIG, Washington Mutual, and Countrywide, all huge key players in this financial crisis that we're still climbing out of. So I asked Larry Kaplan, why do you think your agency failed? Were you guys also going to cocaine parties with the people you were supposed to be regulating with savings and loan bankers? And he said, no. He says the problem was that they could only enforce the rules that they were given. And in the 1980s, Congress changed the rules on them. So when we were talking about oil, one of the problems was that industry tried to influence the regulators directly, tried to give them gifts and quote, brief sexual encounters with industry contacts. In banking, they focused on the politicians, getting the politicians to write the rules they wanted. Economists have one catchy phrase for everything that we've been talking about, regulatory capture. 
And they have been writing about it for decades. There's actually a classic paper from 1971 that talks about the regulatory capture problems of the day, railroads trying to keep trucking costs high, and the butter industry fighting to keep margarine out of the picture. And economists are still talking about this today. We call up Vincent Reinhardt. He's with the American Enterprise Institute. And he says one of the reasons that regulators are so easy to capture is that the rules are very complicated. And that means there are, there's a lot of gray area. There are a lot of things to be negotiated. There are a lot of places for discretion. And Reinhardt says often what happens in a crisis is that government sees its rules are not being enforced and responds by adding new rules, by making the rules even more complicated. When in fact, a lot of the times what you really need are simple, clear rules, like rules that a robot could enforce. If you can actually enforce your regulation from a satellite, that is, you can't go past you know, this far off or offshore, you, or uh, then you're you're in much better shape. You're basically saying take the people out of it. Uh, the more, well, uh, unfortunately, you know, the biggest problem in regulation is they're enforced by people. But wait, you can't change that problem. That there's nothing you can yes. do about that. Uh, well, again, what you can do is recognize that regulations have to be enforced by people, and people are fallible. You try to draw very bright lines, but but so, writing, but sometimes so, you know, but sometimes drawing a bright line is like, sorry, we're never going to drill in the ocean or something like right. that. You know, I yeah. mean, it, it, at some point you will have the technology to do something, and you, your bright line will be wrong. And sure, and, and 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 indeed, you can't write regulations and then go away. The regulations are going to have to evolve. You take into account that regulations have to be enforced by people and that the more judgment you give those people, the more possibilities of things going wrong. So where do we stand today? The oil regulator, as we mentioned, is getting broken up. There will probably be more new rules in response to the spill. In finance, Congress just yesterday began the process of finalizing new rules in response to this financial crisis. And and there's a lot up in the air there. But one thing that seems very, very clear is that no matter what, there will be something in that legislation regarding the Office of Thrift Supervision. That's the agency that was created while Larry Kaplan was standing on the roof watching President Bush abolish his old agency. Here's Larry Kaplan describing what's going to happen. Both the House and the Senate bills propose eliminating the OTS, merging its functions into other agencies. Just so like what happened to you. Basically, 20 years later, history is repeating itself. And the agency is going to go away. So the so people still aren't going away. The people are not going away. It's the agency is going away. The box on the government org chart is being moved. But the people who do the function will move along with the function. But that's, in, that's the whole idea behind closing an agency, isn't it, is getting rid of the people. Well, in some ways, but you'll be under new management. So if I work for the OTS, I'm basically probably not leaving my desk. Probably correct. All right. We will check in and update this podcast for you after the next financial crisis, which, if history is any guide, should be in about 10 years. <laughs> right. When the regulatory capture issues will likely be exactly the same. So we're going to continue to watch the new rules that emerge from Congress, try to understand how they're going to work in terms of regulation in practice. Jacob Goldstein, as always, is writing about that on our blog, npr.org slash money. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thank you for listening.